0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that as we make our way to the manger, the eyes of our hearts would be opened to behold Jesus, who He is and what He has come to do. In His name we pray. Amen. Merry Christmas. I love Christmas. It's great. I love all the traditions and trappings that go along with it. Uh, I really don't mind all that much that it starts too early. Uh, I grew up in a family where it really just got going tonight, and we went on all the way through to Epiphany. And one of the strange traditions that we had in our family, which uh, everyone else thinks is completely crazy, but was a big deal in Victorian England, was on Christmas Eve you would tell ghost stories Uh, And so I grew up listening to the stories of M.R. James uh, right before we were tucked in our bed, and I guess Santa Claus kind of offset the deathly fear that we went to bed with uh, at some level, and thankfully uh, my children have been spared that uh, because you make me work on Christmas Eve. But uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful tradition, and probably the most famous of the Victorian ghost stories is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Uh, It is a a wonderful story uh, that talks about the redemption of an individual. And when Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by Jacob Marley and the other spirits, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future... Uh, Scrooge has the same questions for almost every single one of them. By the end, he kind of catches on as to what is happening in his own life. And he asks them, who are you and what have you come to do? Uh, those are the right questions to ask when someone or something has come into your life through locked doors and invaded your personal space. You're right to say, hey, it's the middle of the night. Who are you and what are you here to do? And that's exactly the two questions that the author of Hebrews is trying to get to. Who is Jesus and what did he come to do? And in just the four opening verses, actually it's, it's one sentence in the Greek as if the author got completely carried away and it's majestic, it's magisterial in its tone of who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do. The author tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. He wants us to know that God has spoken. He's given a word to His people, a definitive word, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only reason why there is a pulpit in this church, and I am in it, is because God has spoken. In fact, God is rather chatty, for God speaks to us by His Word. The Bible's a large book, and God speaks to us through it. Silence does not bring intimacy with God unless it is in silence that you are meditating upon and contemplating God's Word But just sitting in silence isn't going to bring you any nearer to God unless you're actually thinking about His words for you. I had a strange experience last week as I was thinking about this sermon, and I was walking through Brookwood Mall, and all of a sudden I had a breakthrough for this sermon, and a smile spread across my face just as a stranger was walking by me. So they stopped and looked at me and said, hi, how are you? Thinking that the smile meant recognition And of course, it would have been very awkward to say, I just figured out what the first verses of Hebrews were about. It has nothing to do with you. But God's speaking through his word to us. And this is the mark of a newborn Christian, that they crave God's word as a newborn babe greedily craves her mother's milk. One of my children, one of their first words was mine. That says a lot about her. Uh, And I can say that because I have three girls and you have no idea which one it is. Uh, But one of her first words was mine. And the Bible actually approaches that as a good thing when it comes to craving God's Word. Do you see the Bible as a love letter to you? Do you see it as God speaking a word into your life? As Him expressing Himself to you? This is why I would often get upset when I would visit other churches. And literally, just as I'm about to walk into the service, someone comes up to me and says, you only have 10 minutes for the sermon. Now, some of you would say, that's right. (laughs) Amen, hallelujah. Uh, But it's actually a nonsense if if the proclamation of God's word, if, if the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ is central to our gathering together, 10 minutes... Now, look, I've heard guys preach 10 minutes and I've thought, wrap it up. Uh, It's not about just the preacher going on and on, but think when you sit down to your Christmas dinner. You're there, it's a celebratory occasion, and you serve yourself and you put just a few pieces of meat and a a smattering of vegetables on there, or not enough to even cover half the plate. And then you sit down and your, your loved one says to you, Is that all you're going to eat? And you say, well, I only want to eat for 10 minutes. Well, in the same way, feasting on God's word is more than just 10 minutes. As a preacher, I don't want to prattle on and try not to because I have something to say. But because God has something to say to all of us. And you may well say, well, Andrew, that's your opinion. But is it? Well, let's look for ourselves here in Hebrews, when the author tells us in the first two verses that God has spoken long ago and today, that he has spoken to our fathers of old and to us, and that as the fathers of old speak, were spoken to by the prophets, God's son Jesus speaks to us today. God is communicating in all instances, and he speaks plainly. For the author of Hebrews is pointing back to the Old Testament as well. He values it, though he understands that it's not complete apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not God's final word, and yet it is still God's word to men. In fact, the author of Hebrews quotes at length from the Old Testament throughout the letter. And yet it's in these last days that he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. But what are these last days? I know that there are Christians out there that are always trying to read the tea leaves. And when things get really bad and desperate in our world, they say, well, it's the end times. But biblically speaking, if you live between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming, you are living in the end times. But if you're trying to discern the events of the world around us, and you think that it means that the end is near, of course we should always be ready, but Jesus cautions us against that. Because one of the things that comes out of that is when we experience struggle and crisis, it often leads to a desire for a new word, a way that speaks to present day. Uh, the idea that, well, this, what, what was written in Hebrews, is that was 2,000 years ago. That's not a word for us today. We need something, something contemporary. But the author of Hebrews says, no, God has said all he needs to say in Jesus. No matter the difference of 2,000 years or the supposed difference in the struggles that we might have with people who first read this letter 2,000 years ago. Do we think that we're all that different from them? Do we not think that they struggled with loneliness, failure, love? That thinking of their children kept them up at night? Well, they may not have had a stock market to worry about, but they certainly struggle as we struggle. It's easy to want to look for a new word that speaks into our situation. But if you do not tie yourself to Jesus Christ, you will be adrift in a sea of confusion and ultimately wrecked. This word of God testifies to Jesus. But who is he? The author of Hebrews says, He's whom he appointed, the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's so overwhelming that there's no way that we could unpack it tonight. And I'm not even sure what all of it means. But I'm overwhelmed by the language because Jesus is certainly bigger than anything that I could comprehend in my own imagination. What is your relationship to the universe? I love going outside with the telescope and watching the meteors, especially on a clear winter night, looking at the stars and the planets. And I'm just overwhelmed the vastness of it all. And it makes me feel really small that compared to the universe, I am but a speck. And yet we're told that He created the world And just by the word of his power, he upholds the universe. Jesus Christ is the end, the creator, and the sustainer. It would be a great mistake to put Jesus in the category of just a religious figure. You know, that happens to people, especially when they go into the clergy ranks. Uh, There's this impression, and maybe true of some clergy, uh, but this impression of clergy that all they really know to talk about is religion. You can't have a real conversation uh, with them at all. And I took it as a compliment, and I still do. Maybe I should rethink it, but I have a friend uh, who once I overheard saying to someone else, she said, you know, Andrew's a minister, but you'd never know it. (laughs) I think what she was saying is, I inhabit the world in which I live, And oftentimes when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to myself, all the time I'm preaching to myself because I know that the struggles I have are the struggles that you have. That my life is not compartmentalized, nor is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us not mistake Jesus as simply a religious figure. If he's the creator of the world, that means that anything that has to do with the world has to do with Christ. There's not one square inch of this earth that doesn't belong to Him. We don't have a Savior who's not in sympathy with us. But understand what it means to struggle. What it means to be tempted, though without sin. Which makes the struggle even greater because we too all easily cave. That's the God we serve. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So vast, and yet comes to earth in the form of a baby. What does he come to do? Continuing with verse 3b After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's come for a purpose. Jesus did not come to earth just to give us a moral example. Now, truth be told, if we all loved one another in the way that Jesus shows us how to love, the world would certainly be a better place. It's not a bad place to start, but that's not the primary reason why he came. His primary reason for coming wasn't even to be a great teacher. But Hebrews tells us that the primary reason for Jesus being born in Bethlehem was to come in order to make purification for sins. It is by his cross that we are saved. Jesus dirties himself so that we might be made clean. He dies in order that we might live. The voice of the baby in the manger who cries out to his mother is the same voice who cries to his heavenly father, it is finished from the cross. The cross is not simply a demonstration of love. Of course it shows us how much God loves us, but it's not just that, it is our rescue. It is our reconciliation so that we might be made children of God. And after having done what he was sent to do, to be an offering for our sin, to reconcile us to our heavenly father, what is he doing now? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, that's actually a really funny thing to think about. What is Jesus doing now? He's just sitting around. Now, of course, we know that he's interceding for us and that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But the author of Hebrews reminds us that he's seated at the right hand of the Father because he wants us to know that God has done all he has meant to do in his Son, Jesus It cannot be added to because it is already complete. Your salvation is secure. Your relationship with God is now complete and done. But of course, Jesus will come again. He won't sit there forever. And not as a baby, but as a reigning king to bring justice to this war-torn earth. And to ultimately bring the final salvation to his people. I think that we lose sight of that. Especially since it seems like Christmas gets earlier and earlier. I like it. I need a little bit of Christmas in October. I get it. But it seems to be creeping earlier and earlier and earlier that I'm convinced that one day Jesus is going to be resurrected on Easter as a baby in a manger at department stores. And when it's around us so much, when it becomes commonplace, we start to yawn at Jesus' first coming. But I assure you, we will not be given that option at his second appearing when he comes to judge the living and the dead. The notion that God would come amongst us in order to save a people people who didn't ask for it. Indeed he, like Ebenezer Scrooge, was invaded upon. It's simply thrown in front of us. And we're left to make a decision as to what to do with this Jesus. And in just four verses, the author of Hebrews overwhelms us with the glorious message of a God who sacrifices everything for us. We hear who Jesus is, the very imprint of God the Father, and what he has come to do to make purification for sins. It even tells us the means by which we might know who he is and what he's done, and that is by God's word. In 1961, Nikita Khrushchev gave a speech about Yuri Gagarin, about his orbit of the earth. Khrushchev said, Gagarin flew into space but didn't see any God there. But you know what? That tells us nothing. Because God never said, go into outer space if you want to find me. Do you know what God has said? If you want to find him, go to Jesus Christ. If I move away from Christ, I move away from God. Who is he and what has he come to do? God's word tells us of his plan to rescue us. And yes, this Christmas, let us go to the manger and worship him. But let us also follow him to Calvary and the empty tomb, placing our hope in him and him alone. Amen.